Our text for today is Luke 1, verses 67 to 79, which is a prophetic blessing proclaimed by Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Tonight, when we come back, we'll look at Mary's song of praise, the Magnificat, which comes before this uh, in the text. But today, this morning, we want to look at Zechariah's song. And as you're turning there, just maybe a word about uh, the translation of his name. Some of you will have a translation like the New American Standard, which says Zacharias, and others will say Zechariah. And that's simply the result of how names change when they cross from one translation uh, to another. Zacharias is the transliteration of the Greek name, uh, but in the Hebrew, the name was Zechariah, or Zechariah, or at least it's translated that way in our Bibles. Uh, we, we know that names change when they cross translations or, or uh, languages. The, the name Moses, the man that we know as Moses, in, in the Greek, it's Moses, and in Hebrew, it's Moshe. Like, so if, if we talked about Moshe, you're like, who are we talking about? Well, we're talking about Moses, but that's just his name in the Hebrew. Or the name Joshua. Uh, the name Joshua and the name Jesus is actually the same name. In Greek, it's Jesus, or in Hebrew, Yehoshua. But we use the names Joshua or Jesus. So in a similar way, uh, Zacharias and Zechariah is the same man. Zacharias is the Greek transliteration. Zechariah is perhaps the better uh, translation because that reflects the Old Testament name uh, as he's named after the prophet Zechariah. All right, just a footnote there. Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth were a priestly couple, childless, and advanced in years, Luke says. How old they were exactly, we don't know, but old enough where they were still praying uh, for the possibility of having a child, even though it seemed very unlikely. We know that they were praying about it because when the angel Gabriel came to Zechariah while he was offering incense in the table, Gabriel said, your prayers have been answered. Your wife will bear you a son. So they'd been praying that the Lord would open Elizabeth's womb, but that prayer was also mixed with doubt. Rather than responding with joy to that news, Zechariah said, How shall I know this? For I am old, and my wife is advanced in years. The angel says, You mean aside from the fact that an angel is telling you this? <laughs> He's like, How about this? You won't be able to talk until that baby's born. And so it was that Zechariah was unable to speak, and some would say even unable to hear, but for sure unable to speak until the moment that his son was born, and they gave him the name John, as told by the angel. Well, in addition to all the challenges that not being able to speak for a number of months would bring, think about this, Zechariah would not have been able to say a word the entire three months that Mary, who was carrying the Messiah while she was living in their house. No doubt they communicated in many other ways, but it would have been torture for him to not be able to have extended conversations with her about the Messiah and about their, his own son, the forerunner. Well, in due time, Elizabeth gives birth to John and Zechariah's tongue is loosed and the words of our text burst forth like water out of a hydrant. So follow along as I read Luke chapter 1, 
verses 67 to 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, may be, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear." in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. In the original, this is actually one long sentence, which is hard to know how to break it up. But it's one long sentence that is a prophecy blessing God. And notice how it begins there in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. It's fitting that his first words at the birth of his son are a blessing because the last time he spoke over nine months ago, he was in the temple, in the holy place, offering incense. And what was supposed to happen was he was supposed to come out of that, the holy place and he was supposed to speak a blessing to the people. He was supposed to say, the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That's the uh, Aaronic uh, blessing from Numbers chapter 6, which they, the priest would give after offering incense. But because he became mute, he came out unable to bless the people. Now his tongue is loose. And instead of blessing the people, he blesses God, which is to say that he praises the Lord God of Israel. In this blessing, in this song of praise, we see four reasons to praise God at Christmas. Four reasons to praise God at Christmas. Whatever else Christmas involves, whatever else you do this time of the year, any, anything that is going on in us or around us, whatever way we celebrate the birth of Christ, whatever other truths we can celebrate and extol, these are four truths that we can praise God for at Christmas. Simply stated, we can praise Him for His redemption accomplished. His redemption accomplished. We can praise Him also for promises fulfilled. We can also praise Him for salvation Revealed and for his light dawned. Four reasons to praise God his redemption accomplished, his promises fulfilled, his salvation revealed, and his light dawned. Let's begin with the first. The first reason that we can praise God at Christmas is that we can praise him for redemption accomplished. Look at verses 61, excuse me, 67 to 71. Again, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Zechariah erupts with praise over God's redemption. The birth of his and Elizabeth's son and the coming birth of Mary's son marks a dramatic turn, not only in Israel's history, but also in the history of the world. The forerunner and the Messiah are on the earth, and infants though they may be, their arrival brings an end to the centuries-long silence from God and the thousands of years of searching for the promised deliverer. This indeed is a turn in history. Zechariah here is not an ambitious father hoping that his son will be a great man. He's not like Lamech who named his son Noah, hoping that he would be the deliverer. No, Zechariah received divine revelation that his son's life and ministry begins a new era in human history. One that knows the Messiah not as a future hope, but as a present reality. For us living in the 21st century, we will never understand the significance of of Christmas, if we do not understand the world into which John and Jesus were born. The birth of John and the soon arrival of Jesus comes after nearly a thousand years of endless trouble for the nation of Israel. After the military successes of King David and after the world-renowned prosperity of King Solomon, What characterized the nation of Israel from 931 B.C. up to the birth of John was division, war, idolatry, defeat, exile, oppression, and corruption. World powers invaded the land and caused as much trouble as the Lord would allow them. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans each ripped off the scab left by those that came before and cut deeper the wounds of the nation. Whatever seasons of reprieve or restoration Israel experienced were relatively short and quickly followed up by more trouble. In fact, for the last 400 years, there was silence from heaven and people were at their breaking point. Over the last century, For more than the last century, there were self-proclaimed messiahs who would rise up among the people and call them to gather together in rebellion against against Rome only to be crushed without mercy. Like their ancestors who were slaves in Egypt, the people of Israel were desperate for the promises of freedom from their enemies to be fulfilled. But unlike their ancestors, they were in the promised land. Herod's temple had been completed and the people were generally free to worship without interference by the Romans. But that doesn't mean that all was well in Israel. The Romans ruled with an iron fist and excessively taxed the people. The land was filled with the sights and the sounds of this pagan empire, the soldiers of which abused the people with impunity. And though they had a measure of self-governance, their own rulers were really the puppets of Rome and cared only about their own self 
self-preservation and their own power did not at all care for the good of the people. Even their religious leaders oppressed the people by establishing a religion that went way beyond the laws of God, making it almost impossible to live within the lines of religion. Both religious and civil leaders ruled the people and kept them oppressed with fear. Joy and peace were not the words that would describe the condition of the people. And while they had hope, the light of God's promises was often flickering and oh so distant after so much hardship. Some of you can identify with that this morning. The Christmas season calls for joy, celebration, fun, and gifts. The Christmas spirit assumes that you have enough money to check off all of the wish list of your family. Enough time to meet the obligations established by your loved ones. Enough health to be free from concern. Enough relational peace to enjoy parties. But some of you don't have those things. Your relationships are broken. Your health or the health of a loved one is ailing. You aren't able to meet those family obligations and you don't have enough money to get the gifts that you would love to give. Some of you sit in the shadow of death and loss and are overwhelmed with grief and sorrow. Others are saddened by disappointment and discouraged by unmet expectations. For not a few of you, the Christmas spirit is ruined by the realities of life in a fallen world. If your troubles make you want to leave Christmas out in the cold this year, can I encourage you to listen and be strengthened by the words of Zechariah? Like Zechariah, you can praise God for redemption accomplished. Like all the prophets of the past, Zechariah here speaks of the redemption accomplished by the Messiah without making any distinction between his first and his second coming. In his mind, the Messiah was on the earth, and that means all of God's promises are fulfilled. Zechariah here draws language from the Exodus and the prophets to speak of the redemption accomplished by God. He first says here in verse 68 that the Lord has visited his people. When Israel groaned under under the oppression of the Egyptians and the Lord sent Moses back to them, Moses told the people that he was there to deliver them. And the scripture says the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. When God visits his people, it is to rescue them from their trouble. Remember Ruth, who was bereft of her husband and her two sons? She returned to the land which they had left because it had been ravaged by famine. Well, she returned to that land because she had heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The famine was over. In 1 Samuel, we learn that Hannah, who was desperate to have a child, could not conceive. And so she wept and pled with the Lord. And the scripture says, he visited her. And she conceived. Now here, after 400 years of silence from the Lord, 
the Lord visited his people. Zechariah then says he redeems his people. This word means to take to yourself what belongs to you, whether by purchase or by right. A slave in that day could be redeemed by being purchased out of the slave market, or they could be rescued from a master who does not have right of ownership. In the case of the Exodus, the people of Israel were in the land of Egypt who had no right of ownership of the people, and so the Lord redeemed them from that house of slavery and brought judgment on Egypt. And throughout history, because of her disobedience, the The people of Israel constantly found themselves in the hands of those who hated them. The extent of their idolatry and their rebellion against the Lord was so severe that Ezekiel describes Israel as a woman who pays others to take advantage of her. So the people cycled through rebellion and repentance time and time again until the Lord finally gave them over to their sin and cast them out of the land and into the hands of their enemies. But even in that very act of judgment, the Lord says in Micah chapter 4, verse 10, Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. That's the judgment. But then he says, There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hands of your enemies. In time, that's what happened. Eventually they were redeemed out of Babylon and were able to return to the land. And now in Zechariah's day, the people of Israel's neck is under the foot of another enemy. And so the question becomes, how, how will the Lord redeem his people now? Well, verse 69 says, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. Horn refers to strength or power like the horn of an ox. And so the horn of salvation means that God's power will be exerted toward His people and the result of His power is salvation. And this power exerted comes in the form of a man. A man from David's House, a descendant of David who will sit on his throne in Jerusalem. And the result of this king, Zechariah says in verse 71, is that we would be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us. In this statement, he echoes the prophecy of Zephaniah, chapter 3, verse 15, which says, The Lord has taken away the judgments against you, he has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Well, in the birth of John and in the coming birth of Christ, Zechariah declares that promise is as good as fulfilled. But it wasn't fulfilled, was it? And it still isn't today. How much more do we see that as Israel is at war with Hamas and Hezbollah and the nations that would seek Israel's destruction? Beyond that, they're they're being pressured by the rest of the world to give up their right of self-defense. Zechariah here doesn't praise God because everything is said and done. He praises God because the birth of the Messiah, listen, sets in motion the redemption of God that cannot be stopped. This is no different than how the Lord makes promises to you and to me 
that we can praise Him for even though they have not been realized in our life. His redemption of our souls is finished. He has redeemed us from our sin, and yet you and I are still weighed down by the reality of sin in our life. He's freed us from the curse of sin, or rather the guilt of sin, and yet we still struggle with the sorrow over our sin. He's given us His Spirit, and yet we still battle between the flesh and the Spirit. He's promised us an eternal inheritance secure in the heavens, but we don't get it until we see Christ face to face. As Jesus hung on the cross, He declared, It is finished. The greatest work of redemption was accomplished and His substitutionary death and His glorious resurrection signed and sealed salvation and set in motion the rest of God's redemptive purposes. And yet the full realization of all that God has for us is still yet to come. Our battle is that we are so easily bogged down by what we haven't received and what we haven't experienced. We're so focused on our troubles. And so Zechariah's praise here beckons us to follow him and praise God by declaring that Christ has come and victory is his and we are more than conquerors. So beloved, praise the Lord today and tomorrow and every day. You can praise him when life is going well and you can praise him when life is full of trouble because redemption is accomplished even if it has not yet been fully realized. Second, we can praise God for his redemption accomplished. We can also praise God at Christmas for his promises fulfilled. For his promises fulfilled. Look at verses 72 to 75. He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Zechariah praises God because the birth of his son inaugurates the fulfillment of ancient promises to Abraham and his descendants. Abraham lived 2,000 years before this time. We know something about 2,000-year-old promises, don't we? 2,000 years ago, Jesus ascended into heaven and the promise was given that He will descend just as He ascended. He will return. And we've been waiting for 2,000 years. Well, Abraham was given a promise and its fulfillment began 2,000 years later. What was that promise? Well, the first, the first time the Lord made His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12, the Lord made this promise. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then some 40 years later, after Abraham displayed obedience to God's command to sacrifice Isaac, which of course the Lord prevented at the last moment, the Lord reaffirmed his covenant with Abraham saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. 
this covenant from the Lord ensures that though Israel will have their enemies, they would one day see the Lord conquer their enemies and no one would prevent them from fully and freely serving Him. In Zechariah's mind, that would have meant that the Romans would no longer be a threat. Today, from our perception, it means that the desire for Israel's annihilation will no longer exist in the mind and heart of her enemies. And then on the day of the Lord, when He returns to establish His kingdom on the earth, it means that the league of nations surrounding the city with designs bent on its destruction will be destroyed themselves. But you know, Israel has an enemy far greater than governments and armies. And it's the same enemy that you and I have. Sin. Sin is the enemy above all others that prevents Israel from serving the Lord. It's the one that keeps them, even down to today, in a state of rebellion. And so it is from this enemy that they and all of us need deliverance. The prophet Micah proclaims that such deliverance is coming. The last words of his prophecy are are these. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He, He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to your fathers from days of old. Did you hear how Micah there compares the forgiveness of sin with the promise to Abraham and his descendants? It's not just forgiveness of sins that the Lord promises to his people. It's also empowerment to serve him with holiness and righteousness. You saw that in verse 75, right? That we, in, that, that we would serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Holiness and righteousness are not natural to people who are born in sin. And being forgiven of your sin doesn't remove the rebellious streak of the sinful flesh. So how would the Lord ensure that His people can serve Him with holiness and righteousness? Two ways. He promised to give them his spirit and he promised to give them his word. The new covenant promise as revealed in Ezekiel 36 verse 25 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. That's forgiveness. And then he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And then the new covenant promise as revealed in Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. The Lord promised to defeat the enemy of sin in his people, not only by cleansing them of their sin, but also by implanting his spirit and his word in them. This is this ancient covenant is what Jesus inaugurated at the cross. 
After his ascension into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in his apostles and disciples and all of those who would believe on him. And then the the Spirit inspired men to write the Scripture, which is the living and active Word of God, that very sword of the Spirit with which he accomplishes his saving and transforming power and work in the lives of his people. So the oath sworn to Abraham and expanded by the prophets would begin to be fulfilled by this first coming of Christ. And then it will be completely fulfilled by the second coming of Christ. When all of Israel's enemies will be completely done away with. The people of God will be completely separated from sin and death when Christ comes back. And all their enemies will be destroyed. This is cause for praise and exaltation. Our sin is forgiven. We have the Spirit of Christ in us and we have the the Word of God before us. And so we can serve our God with holiness and righteousness. And one day we will serve Him without hindrance of any kind. Well, at Christmas, we can praise God for His redemption accomplished. We can praise God for His promises fulfilled. And third, we can praise God for His salvation revealed. His salvation revealed. Look at verses 66, excuse me, 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins. Zechariah here turns his attention to his baby boy and declares his divine purpose in life, namely, to reveal the salvation of God to his people. As we've seen, the salvation of God is promised throughout the Old Testament, but the last promise spoken by God through his prophets is the last words of Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, which are actually the last words in the Old Testament. And it says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of his fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Those words hung over Israel for 400 years. And then after 400 painfully silent years, an angel appears to Zechariah in the temple and tells him that his wife is going to have a child in her old age. And then he says this about the child. If you you can turn back to verse 15 of chapter 1 here. The angel says this, For he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Salvation is on the way, Gabriel says. And Zechariah's son is the one who will reveal that to the nation. He will be the spokesman. He will be the town crier. He will be the herald who will prepare the way for the Lord. But notice that this message is not one of political salvation. 
He will not proclaim military victory to the nation. Now look in verse 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Sins forgiven is the greatest salvation one can have. You can be saved from your political enemies, but that doesn't gain you citizenship into God's kingdom. You can be saved from bloodthirsty armies, but that doesn't deliver you from the wrath of God. You can be saved from all kinds of things in life, but if your sins are not forgiven, you stand condemned before the judge of all the earth who will cast you into hell for eternity under his just wrath. So as much as Israel might long then and now for salvation from their national enemies, they have no greater need than to be saved from their sins. And that's precisely the same need that you and I have. And praise be to God that in His mercy, that is the very salvation the Messiah came to bring at His first coming. And that's the salvation that John was sent to reveal and prepare the way for Christ. Some 25 years after this moment, John began his ministry publicly and proclaimed the message, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, 2. And then when the time came, some sh- a few short years later, for the public unveiling of the Messiah, John pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. John was the first evangelist. He was the first one to proclaim the good news of salvation from sin. And since then, every generation of believers have echoed and amplified that message that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. And so you and I can praise God that the revelation of salvation has come to us. We have heard of the fulfillment of God's promises. We can hear and even read for ourselves of the life that Jesus lived, the death that He died, the resurrection and ascension, and all of what that means for our lives today. And more than that, you and I, can join the chorus of proclaiming that message to the world. Starting with John, the evangelist, God ensures that this gospel, this good news, this message of salvation is spread around the world so that all might hear and all might know that Jesus, the Son of God, will forgive your sin if you would but believe on Him. This is a reason to praise God. God has not kept salvation and the message of salvation reserved for the higher echelons of society. He hasn't kept the message contained to just a few. It's it's not a message that requires payment to hear or a special intellect to understand. No, it's a message that's, that's proclaimed to everyone without distinction, without limitation, and without prejudice. It's for young and old. It's for rich and poor. It's for all people in all places, in all languages. Praise God that His salvation has been revealed to the likes of you and to the likes of me because we can celebrate the forgiveness of sins through Christ. Well, the fourth reason that we can praise God at Christmas is for His light dawned. We can praise God at Christmas for His redemption accomplished, His promises fulfilled, His salvation revealed. And here in verses 78 and 79, we see that we can praise Him for His light dawned. Look at it. 
Because, he says, of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. The sunrise from on high is simply a reference to the Messiah. And at the moment of John's birth, that dawn of a new day was not yet here. So Zechariah speaks in the future tense when he says the sunrise shall visit us. Three months still needed to pass before Jesus would be born. And so he speaks as as one who rises from sleep while it's still dark, knowing that dawn is about to come, that the sun is about to rise. He can see those rays going out across the sky, even though he can't yet see the sun on the horizon. But once that light comes, as long as it is day, that light shines on everyone who has eyes to see. Here again, Zechariah sounds forth promises long foretold. I've already read to you the last two verses of the Old Testament where Malachi proclaims, the coming of the forerunner of the Messiah. Just a few verses earlier, we hear this. In fact, we sang it in one of the hymns. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Isaiah chapter 9, also as it begins, its prophecy of the coming Messiah says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then in Isaiah 42, another prophecy of the the Messiah, which we read earlier, I remind you in that prophecy, the Lord speaks to the Messiah saying, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Darkness represents ignorance, confusion, hopelessness. There in Isaiah 42, darkness itself is a prison. A prison, it is a dungeon. It's a place of despair because without light, you can't, Uh, perceive the world. Without light, you can't understand the sounds that you hear. You can't make sense of your surroundings. Unless someone comes alongside you to give you understanding, a blind person is virtually immobile, unable to move without running into danger. Such a condition leads to anxiety and to fear and uncertainty. This is living in the shadow of of death, where you can't see everything is a threat to life. When Jesus came, he didn't come to just walk alongside the blind to guide them. He didn't come to to lead those sitting in darkness so that they could get around. No, Jesus came and gave sight to the blind. And he His light shines so that new eyes can see and we can make sense of the world and freely move around it without fear. That tension and that hesitancy felt in the dark is replaced by peace and ease in the light. The light of Christ guides us in the way of peace in that we we can see and walk the proven paths that are straight and avoid the paths that are full of cracks and crevices and pitfalls and dangers. 
Zechariah here praises God that dawn is coming, you and I can praise God that dawn has come and the light of Christ shines. The birth of Jesus is the dawn of Christmas because light has come into the world. Jesus himself said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he says again in John 12, verse 46, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ has shone in our hearts and with our blind eyes open, we can see him and follow him in the paths of peace. But you know, not everyone does. The tragic reality is that many do not come to the light. John 3, 19 says, and this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Unlike roaches that just scatter when the light gets turned on, sinners hate the light and do anything they can to extinguish the light. And those who had the opportunity to put out the light of Christ did exactly that, or so they thought. The Jewish leaders thought they could extinguish the light by putting him to death. But once again, the light dawned on the third day and Jesus arose from the grave victorious over sin and death. And his light shines on all those who believe on him. And so the call goes out from Ephesians 5.14 to all who live in darkness, awake, O sleeper, Arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. And to all on whom Christ has shone, who believe on him, to all who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, we are to live in the light. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The light of Christ emanates from his word. And as we walk in that light, the spirit produces that fruit of peace and joy and love and so much more. So, beloved, like Zechariah, we can praise God at Christmas because the light of Christ shines. The dawn of Christmas arrived 2000 years ago. And ever since, the light of Christ has shined for us to see and believe and follow. Without his light, we would be lost and blind. Without his light, we would be imprisoned in the dungeons of darkness, hopeless and despairing. But praise God that his light has dawned. Well, at Christmas, we can praise God for his redemption accomplished, for his promises fulfilled, his salvation revealed, and his light dawned. I want to close by pointing out something I've intentionally passed over in the words of Zechariah. I want you to notice that in verse 72, he says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers. Some translations say to show mercy to our fathers. And then in verse 78, he says, because of the tender mercy of our God. 
Zechariah declares, and we've considered what God has done that give us, gives us reasons to praise Him. But in those particular words, Zechariah reminds us why God does those things. Mercy can be an action in the sense of showing kindness or withholding consequences. But the word itself speaks to the attitude of the heart, which then leads to action. Compassion would be a close synonym, even pity. So what is mercy? Here's one way to put it. Mercy is God's response to misery. It's God's response to misery. The word tender there in verse 78 speaks to the, that visceral affection one feels when faced with the misery of others. You and I can see or hear a, some news flash of the suffering caused by war or some other reason. And our soul is unfazed, untouched. Because it just runs past our eyes and our ears so quickly. But when you and I sit and the anguish of someone's voice is splashed onto our faces as they speak of their pain and their sorrow and loss, you cannot help but feel that tender mercy toward them. Or when someone you love has an ache in their voice as as they express their affliction, the, the tenderness of your soul is touched and, and you share, even if a little, in their suffering with them. Well, God knows every detail of your life. He sees everything that happens and He hears every sound. His own heart is perfectly shaped by love and justice and righteousness and truth. He is perfect in all of his ways and just in all of his thoughts. And so when he sees misery, from the perfections of his heart flow mercy and compassion and affection. God is not uncaring and unaffected and unfeeling. Mercy is how a perfect heart responds to sin and suffering. And so it is out of his tender mercy toward his people that he accomplishes redemption, that he fulfills his promises, that he reveals salvation, and that he shines his light. Jesus said in Matthew 9.13 to the Pharisees who couldn't understand why Jesus would spend time with sinners, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus reminds them there that that God is a God of mercy. In the same way, when Paul wants to describe God's work of salvation in Ephesians 2, he emphasizes what it is in God that gives rise to his saving work. He says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which He loved us, even we were, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. My friends, God is rich in mercy. 
in parading his glory before Moses in Exodus 34, he, he puts his best foot forward in saying, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is who he is. And it is out of his mercy toward you, a sinner, that the dawn of Christmas came. So whether you're in the Christmas spirit because all is well, your family is whole, your provisions are full, or you're broken, you're struggling, you're sorrowing, know that God's mercy is toward you. You only need to look to Him to believe that He has in His mercy sent His Son for you. That His redemption is accomplished. It was finished at the cross and it will be completely fulfilled when He comes again. You can find your joy and your peace not in what's going on around you, not in your own ability to change your attitude, but find your joy and peace in Him the Lord Jesus Christ who came to this earth and set his love on you. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we reflect on these truths, it's amazing that the God of the universe, the one who made the planets and the stars, all that we see in creation, would give a thought to us. That He would so set His love on us that He would give us Himself. That's what You have done, Lord. You have left Your throne, came to this earth, lived a life we could not live, died a death that we deserved, rose from that grave victorious, and now You freely generously and graciously offer forgiveness to all who would trust in you. And and when you save us, you don't just forgive us of our sins, but you enter us into a life of joy and peace. You give us your spirit and you guide us by the light of the truth. We give you praise. We rejoice in that. Help us to spread that message that joy to others. For the sake of Christ, we pray. Amen.